what what have I missed? Have you guys recorded anything, or are you just bullshitting? No, no, no. We we just put the world to rights. I honestly, coming up on nine o'clock, which is what coming up on two o'clock for you, Andy. Yeah, but we've been out this morning. The dogs have just passed out. Now. Did you want to? Did you want to go? Yeah, let's right, go. Then, then let's get rolling. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Are we ready? Yes, ready. Hold on. I've not got my book open at the right page. Give me a second. So free for all is page ninety-six. Because it was the second episode filmed. There we go. Free for all. Where am I? The Voyager cast. Who are you? The second in command. What do you want? To cover every iteration of Star Trek. I will not watch Voyager, Enterprise, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, or Discovery. My life is my own. By hook or by crook, you will. I am not a prisoner of your podcast whims. Alright, you want to do the prisoner? Alright then. The Village People. An exploration of the prison. With Paul Spataro, Dave Pascarella, Bill Robinson, and Andrew Lamb. Hello and welcome to The Village Idiots, an exploration of the classic 1960s mind-bender, The Prisoner. I am joined today by, as ever, my own Richard Hammond, Mr. David Pascarella. How's it going? Captain Slow himself, Paul Spataro. Hello. And, as Jeremy Clarkson, Dr. Bill Robinson. On today's programme, number two becomes a drunk, number six runs for number two, and the maid becomes number two. Oh, and Rover gets a fan club. All I know is I'm called the Stig. I'm Andrew Leyland. Hello. Today's episode is Free For All, written by Paddy Fitz, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, and directed by Patrick McGowan, with a little bit of assistance from Don Chafee. We'll be talking about all of that as we get into the show. Synopsis. Go, go, go. Hold on a second. Paddy Fitz, is that a pseudonym for Patrick McGowan? That may be a pseudonym for Patrick McGowan. Hmm. Who can say? Well, all right, we can say it's a pseudonym for Patrick McGowan. <laughs> okay. Free Sorry. for All. Sorry, it's okay. Free for All was originally broadcast on ITV on Friday, the 20th of October, 1967, and broadcast in the United States on CBS on Saturday, the 29th of June, 1968. <laughs> Election time in the village, the time when every man and woman is able to vote for a leader, a vote that is free for all. It looks like a unanimous majority. Exactly, that's what worrying me. Very bad for morale. Some of these good people don't seem to appreciate the value of free elections. Everyone votes for a dictator. Not at all. Frankly, my dear fellow, you are just the sort of candidate we need. How are you going to handle your campaign? No comment. Intends to fight for freedom at all costs. Who elected you? Whose side are you on? Mustn't get too personal, my dear fellow. Look at them. Brainwashed imbeciles. The rules demand that you should undergo the test. What is the price of his freedom and his chance to control the village? It's free for all to see in the next exciting episode of The Prisoner on this channel. 
Is it a genuine democratic election or just another ruse? The prisoner views it all with satirical amusement with the elections for the new number two is announced. And the present number two suggests that the I can't speak today, can I? And the present number two suggests that he should run as a candidate. But what do they plan to do if the prisoner is elected? Ooh. <laughs> right. I don't really know where to begin with this one. Yeah. First off, the opening credit. We should mention that this was the second episode filmed, so there is a lot of location footage of Port Marion in it. Uh, the original director Don Chafee was shown the door after a couple of days of filming, and Patrick McGowan took over. It is the first instance of McGowan's control freakery coming to the fore in that he interfered with everything from the scripting. He is the writer of this episode. The editing, he would ask for numerous scenes were edited, re-edited, re-cut after they were supposedly finished to get exactly what he wanted from this particular show. Hmm. So there's a lot of behind-the-scenes strum and drang in this one. On the one hand, it is a wonderful little satire on the election process, which doesn't seem to have changed much in 55 years. Uh, On the other, watching it again now, it's a great 30-minute episode that unfortunately runs for 48 minutes. Yeah. And I think, as good an actor as Patrick McGowan is, perhaps there is something to be said for not letting actors direct themselves. He seems quite mannered in this one. What what do you mean by mannered? His performance seems quite deliberate and clipped and not as natural as it normally does. And I do wonder if that's because his mind is more focused on what the camera's doing. Because obviously he can't be looking through the lenses while he's acting. So he's he's doing a dual role in his head, like, I'm going to do this, and he's not concentrating on just acting, he's concentrating on the other side of the camera how does this look what am i doing it, how, how am i going to edit this yeah he does seem a little i mean granted they did drug his character in this episode well of course they often drug his character they often drug his character <laughs> but a little more so in this he's yeah he seems a little off yeah even for now, him. some of that you can put down to that this is the first episode where he's not in control everything that happens in this episode is a result of things happening to him and him being kind of forced to go along with it rather than him taking control of the situation, which is where the episodes normally go. And arguably, this is his first defeat. Isn't, isn't, doesn't he have a defeat in every episode, really? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't get away, but I think in his own way, he scores little victories. Like, he scored a little victory in the charms of Big Ben in that he was able to actually get off the village showing them that that could be done, even if he ended up back being there. He got a little bit of a victory in Checkmate, but ultimately, yeah, he ends up back in the village, so he doesn't win. On this one, though, he's never on the front foot. He's always on the back foot in this one. He's running away rather than running towards. He thinks he's won, but, it, yeah, he gets shut down. Yeah. I mean, the first thing we should mention is the opening credits the opening title dialogue is not this number two. I thought it it was, yeah. 
it's um, a generic voiceover that is used in other episodes when they mm-hmm. also don't have the footage of number two doing the recording or they want to, for some reason, obfuscate who number two is for reasons of plot. Now, it it doesn't specify one way or another if this was because number two in this episode, who is played by Eric Portman, didn't record the dialogue deliberately or whether it was just an oversight or whether it was to hide the fact that there is a twist at the end of the tale. You do see a clip of him in the opening credits, sat in the little round chair, mm-hmm. but he doesn't do the dialogue, which is a first for the show. So speaking of number two, uh, any choices for alternate number twos for you, you fellas? You show that turn who's boss. Older one and a current one. So that's okay, you excited? I get two. Two. Ooh, always two. So for the older one, I went with Maurice Evans. Very good. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, yes. Yeah. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> or or uh, what you call it? Endora's father from Bewitched. <laughs> I forget he was in <laughs> But he, he was such a, I don't know, so pompous and... and, and... Wait, he was in Endora's father, wasn't he? Not Endora's father, father, Samantha's father. Endora's, Endora's oh, okay. estranged okay. husband. Yes. Um, and then for the current one, I have John Billingsley, who you might know as the doctor from the series oh. Enterprise. Dr. Flox. Dr. Flox. Hmm. I, I had... Uh, Oddly enough, I don't know, because of the drunk scene, I wanted to see for the old number two would be John Pertwee. Oh, you son of a bitch again. (laughs) You did this to me last time. (laughs) He was my he was my 67 choice as well, but he would have been doing Doctor Who. So whether or not he would avail it, but watching this guy, there's a Pertwee vibe. I'm sorry, but availability isn't an issue, Andy. Oh, that's true. Yeah, he's dead anyway. So, yeah. well, especially when he's doing the drunk. Yeah, I just pictured John Pertwee in one of when he does his manic things as the Doctor or as Wurzel Gummidge. Yeah, you know, I was just like, "Yep, I could see John Pertwee doing this role." And then for the newer none number two, let me see if I can steal Andy's again. Probably not. <laughs> this one's a little out there. Uh, Miguel Ferrer. Hmm. Oh, Miguel Ferrer is an excellent. He would not have been my choice. So you've not got two for two, though. But you've second week in a row, you've usurped me. <laughs> well, next week, you can go first. Ah, OK. <laughs> no, I quite like that. I quite like the shows were on pretty much the same wavelength. <laughs> Who's Dave got? Well, for the old one, I actually went with Doctor Who, too. But I said William Hartnell. Oh, that's still a good choice. And for a modern Doctor Who, a modern Doctor Who, a modern (laughs) number two, Ian McDermott. Mm. Oh. Because I could see him with the, you know, like from the episode one, you know, so conciliatory, you know, yes, we want to help you. 
And then sticking the knife in his back at the end. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, Ian McDermott, good choice. Absolute power. <laughs> oh, and you know, <laughs> information. Yeah, all that would be, all that would be cool. Well, Bill stole my contemporary, uh, not contemporary, my 1967 choice, which was John Pertwee. Because like you, there was just something about Eric Portman's performance that I saw Pertwee. So that was my old choice. My new choice, Michael Sheen. Because Ooh. if you're going to pick somebody to play a politician, you pick somebody who played Tony Blur twice. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know what? We've got another number two this episode. I didn't think of it. Before we go, we really should say. Okay. At this point, we will be spoiling this episode. And this is an episode that does contain a bit of a, a twist in the tale. So if you've not watched it, I suggest you now go away, watch it, and then come back and listen to the rest of the episode. Because isn't, isn't it's a pretty good isn't twist. Isn't that the reality for every episode that we do? Well, yeah, but there are some things, you know, you can read a review or you can catch a bit of a film or whatever, and you can know basically how it's going to unfold and it still doesn't spoil your enjoyment of it. And then yeah, there are stories where there's, a, there's a, a catch in it that if you knew that going in, the story wouldn't be as effective, even though it may still be good and enjoyable. All right. Yeah, did you two see that coming? I did not. No. Yeah. No way did I see that coming. No. So if we're going to cast another one, and I hadn't planned for this, so I'm going to go mm. Jenna Coleman. That's hmm. a good one. Because she could pull off the maid. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But she could also do the twist that having seen her as Constantine in The Sandman, she can pull that off as well. So I would go with Jenna Coleman. I I defer to you because I, I, I had not even thought of a pick for this number two until we were discussing it because that's where yeah. I realized, oh, yeah, you know, we get a number one. Oh, Anjali Mohindra. Oh, yeah, she'd be good. I'll set, I'll put Jenna Coleman in my back pocket for what I'm thinking of later. Angelie Mulhindra. And I I, uh, I actually thought about this while it was on, and just from the vibe I got from her, I went with Katie Holmes. Oh yeah, mm. good choice. Okay. Uh, See, you've put us on a bit of a spot here, Bill. Sorry, so that's okay. We don't have to come up with one. It's it just, this, you know, I mean, you know, we could, uh, it's all right. It's okay. Uh, I'm going to say, just to throw a name out, young Jacqueline Smith, because I really liked her. Ooh. Oh, yeah, we didn't even think of doing a contemporary one. <laughs> or, uh, yeah. How old would she have been in 1967, though? 12? Uh, uh, so much Six. So she would have been in, she would have been a teenager, I guess. Of course, Katie Holmes would have been maybe like not born. How old was Sophia Loren back then? Well, she just done fifty thousand years BC, hadn't she? No, oh, that, that was, was in the sixty-six. Oh, that was Raquel Welsh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, oh. well, Sophia Loren would have given us the exotic quality that this character has you you know speaking the foreign language hmm. is she speaking french she's not speaking, she's speaking anything gibberish, isn't she okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> it is literally a made-up language 
because <laughs> McGowan didn't want anyone to twig where she was from. Ah. Because then he, he figured people would identify with where the village was. So he basically told her, just think like Slavic. And she basically put it together herself based on the gibberish words he'd written in the script. Nice. So, again, he, he's thinking about this idea that, well, is it ran by the British? Is it ran by the Americans or is it run by the Russians? So he's already he is giving thought to I don't want to give away where it may be from. Man, she gets under his skin, doesn't she? <laughs> she does. Yeah. But, and that's why the, the ending where it's revealed that he's made all the way through this episode. And essentially, his running partner is his number two. <laughs> Eric Portman's a red herring. Yep. It's time. Well, and uh, no, hello. At no yes, point sorry. as well is six asked, does he want to run? The minute that number two announces it, the paper's already printed. The badges are already made. The posters <laughs> the are already giant printed. Yep. coming out on the car. And yep. he's like, what, 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 what? Yeah. And suddenly he swept up in the tide of events. And some of the, some of the satire is a little bit obvious. But I did like him driving the mini moak with the maid and the press leap on it. And they're asking him a bunch of questions and he just keeps going, no comment. And he make up his answers. Right. And then when Except he gets the answer, time he says no comment. Yeah. He, he says, blah, 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 blah. And they go, ah, no comment. What? what? <laughs> when he actually answers the question, they give him no comment. And this is why I think I like most of this one. We've not seen him out of control before we've not seen where you get the feeling he knows what he's doing he's completely on the back foot here the entire idea is to just keep him off balance all the way through it well it would keep me off balance also i mean i I don't think i would trust them for a second uh you know that oh yeah if i win the election they're gonna give me control over anything so you know, it, it, well, I think me... he falls for the idea that it is a democratic election. But well, he he's, also, he's also drugged. Mm. <laughs> again, you know, again, when, when you know, and, and and then he's suddenly, you know, spouting the village party line. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. Yeah. Be seeing you. <laughs> you know, it's almost like though that. And I get it's a British program, but it plays off a lot of the traditional imagery we have, too, where them coming to him to run. It's a very I know they have their motives, but traditionally it was you didn't seek out to run for the presidency. You know, people came to you, the whole George Washington type of thing. He wasn't going to run. They came to him and asked him. But since like uh, Cincinnatus, he doesn't seek power. They come to him to deal with a, a situation. And it seemed like, I don't know, to me, uh, I looked at number two and I looked at number six, you know, campaigning against each other. And with number six having, I'm going to call her the French girl, even though she's not French, I got this image of. The 1960 election of John F. Kennedy versus Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Well, 
that will have been fresh in in his mind though in 1966, won't it? Mm. The thing that that's the thing we have to remember that at the time that he wrote this, that will have been in his mind. There will have also been um, a general election in this country in 66. Which you saw know, it was also con- a lot of what? what he was saying. Number six, you know, you in the beginning before he got s- somewhat corrupted. You know, the, do you want the old, the, you know, the same old thing or, you know, freedom to know it was it just to me it hit, you know, Nixon with the the Eisenhower years to the new frontier of the Kennedy years. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just is, is that what he's partially saying, though, in it once you get in there, all of your idealism goes out the window. Mm-hmm. And you've just become part of the problem because there are so many insurmountable issues in your way to try and effect real lasting change, especially in as short a period as you've got. Is he ultimately arguing that it's folly to think anyone can change anything in such a short amount of time? Mm. Or can anyone do that and not be corrupted by what's going on and the surroundings and backhanders and big money and all that stuff i don't know because as usual he doesn't give you any answers and it's everyone becomes your enemy yeah from all your supporters who turn on you the press is your enemy everybody's your enemy so so suddenly is his paranoia justified part of it is obviously the drugs that he's been given Mm. But does he is he is that what he's saying as well? Is he saying that at some point you become so paranoid to cling on to the power that you've got that you can't trust even your most trusted advisors? What did you think of the symbolism in there of the contrast? Very stark. The white button. Number two had the white button, right? Yeah. And number six, the black. The hallways where you went from a, a red hallway stopped to a green room go the circle versus the square and the the test it just seemed they tried to pick imagery that was such you know contrasting images good and evil black and white Mm. i haven't picked up on any of that which is why i'm enjoying it watching it with you because your point because it was you pointed out the the automated resignation room in the opening credits that's never seen by a human. I hadn't even considered that. And now you pointed out, yeah, when he's being interrogated, it's a circle versus a square. The the the, the things that there were in, they have a proper name and it's completely blank in me. The, fe- the flowery things with the vote in them. Uh, like a pageant button or a corsage? Yeah, that kind, or... I, mm-hmm. that, I, it has a proper name and it's slipping my mind. But yeah, black and white. And there's an argument to be made that the episode completely runs contrary to what you're saying about circle, square, black, white, stop, go, that politics aren't like that. And they can't be like that. He would be being a black button. He would be like the quote unquote dark horse candidate. Even better. Yeah. So there's there's an awful lot of how much he's put into it as a writer and, but then there's a feeling that he lets the surrealism get in his way. <laughs> so, sorry, I'm not laughing at, at, at what you said. I just happened to be looking over one of the quotes where when he first addresses the crowd and, and number two 
uh, you know, good people, it's my pleasure to present to you the one and only number six. Yay! <sighs> I am not a number. I am a person. In some place, at some time, all of you held positions of a secret nature and had knowledge that was invaluable to an enemy. Like me, you are here to have that knowledge protected protected and extracted and then number two that's the stuff give it to him <laughs> <laughs> and he's like unlike me many of you have accepted the situation of your prison your imprisonment and will die here like rotten cabbages back to number two keep going they love it <laughs> i mean oh that's where i could see john pertree just like <laughs> right yes but, I mean, but the other thing that he's playing with as well is how much of what he's saying actually has any substance. Uh, how much of it is just sound bites? How much of it is him saying what he thinks we want to hear to get him voted in? It sounded like mm-hmm. that to me. That's that's kind of exactly the vibe I got from it. Uh, but I always come back to, like, I, I guess I got to go with what Bill said, that he was drugged, because... I keep thinking, you know, even early on in his stay, what power does he think they're going to actually let him have? At most, he's going to be a puppet if he wins. Yeah, but to him, he's probably thinking even any little victory I can get, more information I can find out that'll get me one step closer to getting out of here. I think he's willing to take that risk. Maybe it's that I'm so cynical, but I'm thinking in his position, and certainly I'm not the seasoned spy, but I'm thinking that... They're manipulating me, and they want me to win this thing so that somehow they can continue to manipulate me. But you've got the thing at the end when he does win, and all he really wants to do is tell everyone they can mm-hmm. go. Yeah. So he's he's not really got any idea of actually taking power or anything. He just wants to let everyone be free, only to learn that they don't want to be. But, but does he really think that they're going to let him free everybody? You know, maybe maybe they're they're, they're letting See, him get into this position because they already know that nobody's going to take him up on it, or they're just going to cut him off at his legs at some point. <clears throat> I don't know. See, that's interesting because he's that's never addressed, and I kind of have to go with the idea that because he's swept up in the events and drugged, he doesn't really think about that. Because yeah, there's no reason for him to believe they're going to keep their word to him. They never have before. Yeah. I think there's a little bit, I think, of what Bill says, that he's just happy if he gets any victory. And if he thinks that he can let them get away and open all the barriers and he's got access to the communication and he can find out who number one is or whose side runs the village and let people get away, that's the very least that he can hope for. He's so manic and frantic in in that moment. You know, he's, he's grabbing all the phones. He's got them all smashed up to his head. You're free to go. And But now was that, that still because he was partially drugged? No, yeah. I think it, well, no, because when he's just... drugged, when he's drugged, I think he slips out of the drug because there's moments to where, um, okay, so here's another speech. And to me, this is him being completely brainwashed. And uh, this was uh, and it was he says there are those who come in here and deny that we can supply every conceivable civilized amenity within our boundaries. You can enjoy yourselves and you will. You can partake in the most hazardous sports and you will. The price is cheap. 
All you have to do in exchange is give us information. Now, this is number six we're talking about. You are then eligible for promotion to other and perhaps more attractive spheres. Other villages? Who knows? Mm. Where where do you desire to go? What has been your dream? I can supply it. And this is where I, I see, you know, this is po- politicians then, politicians now. Uh, what has been your dream? I can supply it. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, they can be... They can all be yours at any time. Apply it to me, and it will be easier and better. To me, that's a slimy politician line if I ever heard one. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, I think he's his drug, the amount of drug they have in him waxes and wanes through this whole thing. Just like when uh, later at the end when he's in the, in the, in the cave, actually, quote-unquote, drinking al- alcohol, and the guy – tells him about the mixture you know you know we need to be careful blah blah blah. so i think they've been drugging him all along because he'll be he'll have these moments to where he slips back to his normal self when he's with uh number 58 and it makes you think that maybe it's just because she's batshit crazy and annoying or is it that he's actually she's there to monitor him to see when he comes out she's batshit crazy and annoying to see when he slips out of the drug and then they give him more of the drug to keep him to quote unquote keep running. But you know, uh, I I also saw it from the perspective he's spewing out all this propaganda, right? That's the village's propaganda. Sometimes people will say things just to get elected with the best right. intentions. That's once I'm in there, I'm going to say what they want me to say. And what, once yeah. I'm in there, I can change things. So we don't really know. Is he drugged or is he really doing this for that reason? That's that's one of the interesting things that I find about the show is that you, you don't always know a character's motivation. But then, deep down. again, it just keeps bringing me back to what I was saying, though. Like, does he really believe they're going to actually give him any power in that village if he's not drugged? I just don't see that. No, I don't think he does. I don't think he's got any. I don't think he's got any desire now, for it. it. Now it's the possibility I guess, that, that he thinks if he wins, he'll he'll have access to some things where, under you know, under the pretense of pretending like he's going along with their things, maybe he can you know kind of figure out a way to undermine them. But even then, like to think that they'd set him up in that position is kind of silly. Yeah, but it's just another way of them showing the methods that they could get or they could use to get him to give them what they want. And they're choosing not to use those methods. In the grand scheme of things, this felt to me more like it's just a satire on the electoral system than it is an ongoing continuity in this episode or in this series, rather. Oh, I, I think that's definitely what it is. And I, I do think, as we've mentioned, I do think he runs out of steam about 10 minutes before the end because you've got the lengthy boat chase that is well shot and the stunt work's very well done. Although, did you notice that the second stuntman that he throws overboard is already wet? Oh, I didn't notice that. No. <laughs> it did. It, it, like, this, like this is a second take. Possibly. It felt like so far these were some of the best action sequences that we've had and felt more like the, you know, the spy films of the day. As far as mm. that went, and and I could see where 
they could have a goal to add a little bit more action to it because, <clears throat> you know, you think about the mindset when the, you know, when the cage was done for Star Trek and they said, oh, it's, it's too cerebral, you know, the audiences can't get, you know, get, get, a, you know, behind this. So maybe in something like this, they decided, you know, we need to put a little bit more action into the episodes so that the fans will have something to kind of latch on to that isn't just thought provoking. Uh, you know, I, I believe it underestimates the audience, especially since this show has become such a, uh, you know, a, a popular thing in, in, you know, in, in hindsight. Uh, but just the same, I, I know that that was a mindset with Star Trek, so it wouldn't shock me if it was a mindset here also. Yeah, you've got to have something to appeal to everybody. Yeah, I mean, I guess it might. So they have a. I, I think more you just have to appeal they, to your core audience, but whatever. Yeah, but that's the, at the time your core audience was everybody. There was three channels. Yeah, so you don't want to watch that other crap. Watch us. Yeah, mm. we're more interested. And I, I what like I liked it. about I'm... this one. Unlike today when there's 900 channels and there's nothing on. And loads of streamers and nothing worth watching. <laughs> I I just generally like the whole pop art feel of it. It felt very contemporary to the time that it was made in a way that a lot of the shows that were on the air at the moment didn't. Maybe Batman, maybe Ruins and Martins laughing. But a lot of the other stuff now, if you watch it, it yes, it's set in the 60s, but it's not got that slightly surrealist pop art its sensibility that was the approach to art in the late 60s and even though this delves a little bit too far into surrealistic imagery at the point at the expense of telling its story clearly i still like how it's all put together i got a kick out of how they had the campaign posters already and they both have hmm. what what must have been that you know we know it's uh number six's id photo and number two's, it must have been his ID photo, too, because he's in the suit, too. So they must be able to access that room. Mm -hmm. Right. I like that the, the pub's name is the cat and mouse. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like that we see the cave set again. That's actually got some guy in there doing real alcohol. Uh, yeah, and... We also had the, uh, uh, I don't, like I said in the opening, the Rover Fan Club, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know what was going on there. You got, what, three or four guys sitting around Rover, like... Worshipping him. Worshipping him, yes. Rover's oh, like... Because oh, remember, there are baby Rovers. Oh, that's true, yeah. Speak in fact, we see the baby Rovers again. If I was going to give Rover a voice, it would be Tim Curry. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to have that sequence on the show. <laughs> well, he does roar. Roar! All right, so that's Ted Cassidy do the roars. Yes. Any anytime there's a roar, I, I uh, cast Brian Blessed. Six is alive. Alive. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... The big twist at the end, he uh, becomes number two. He wins by landslide, tells everybody, you're free to go. They don't uh, want him. And they don't. 
And uh, a bunch of guys come in, beat the shit out of him, and uh, put him on a stretcher. And in walks his maid with the number two button and says, and she starts speaking English. And, yep, that's it. (laughs) So by the time he gets to the end of it, he's affected no change whatsoever. He sees that once you're inside, you can't make any of the changes that you wanted to make. Because by and large, as long as the people are happy and distracted, they don't want change. Yeah. I made an analogy to someone years ago when, you know, how I thought professional wrestling was the breaded circuses of our time for the like the Roman Empire. And they're like, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, don't don't you know where bread and circuses were? They would feed the people and entertain them to take their mind off their troubles. I was like, sports and television and wrestling is nothing and and UFC fighting is nothing but our own modern day bread and circuses to distract us from what's really going on around us. Oh, wow, man. (laughs) That's very deep. And then we would go on. Yeah, I watched that last night. That was pretty good. (laughs) So, so, So that's ultimately it is more satire on the election process than it is an episode of The Prisoner. And I suppose it depends on how much you like that satire is how much you like the episode. Yeah, I, I have nothing more to add. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> what Bill is really saying is that he felt this episode... <laughs> Well, do we think we're ready to rate? Ready to rumble. Yeah, we could. I want to know why Rover was glowing when they're all worshipping him. Because he's getting power. Power! All right. Okay. Absolute power, yeah. Corrupts Rover. He feeds on souls. (laughs) (laughs) He suffocates them. That could actually be true. He's into, uh, what is that? Autoerotic asphyxia? Ew. Yeah, I've I've said too much. Sorry. (laughs) But killed Michael Hutchins. Oh, I was going to say David Carradine. (laughs) Maybe they were together. Who can say? (laughs) I've watched this show called The Prisoner. Let's try this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, some of his shootings good. I love the the zoom in shot on her as number two at the end. Mm. Where she's basically like, yeah. I've, I did all this, yes. I'd have liked to have seen her carried into the next episode and see what else she would come up with. But I sadly, forgot we don't had another female number two. For some reason, I only, I thought the lady from Dance of the Dead was the only, only one. And I was mistaken. And in fact, I did a glance ahead, and I am sadly mistaken. I had totally... Yes. Yep. There's a couple of female number twos. Mm-hmm. And by and large, it's interesting that it's the women the female number two episodes that bring him down more than the men. Mm-hmm. Because she actually affects the the first proper victory over him in that he's pretty crushed at the end of this one. Yeah. And uh, bars over his face. All right, so what's the rating? Who's who's going first? I'll go. I think Dave should go first. I thought Dave would love this one. 
I thought it was very good. Like I said, I I had the whole, especially if this was something about number two that reminded me of Richard Nixon. I got a kick out of the political angles. Some of the the drunk-induced scenes towards the end, I kind of sat there and went, what the heck is going on? Well, your thoughts mirror the TV audience of 1967 in many ways. Like, man, uh, someone took an acid trip on this in this section. But uh, I think it had a lot to say about the way the political process works in a, in a democracy. And I think it hit a lot of nails on the head. And I mean, and I'm not talking about recent elections. I'm saying... Going way back, even into the 1800s, there were elections where the guy that won didn't win. So for those reasons, I give it a number five, five votes, like in Chicago. I also gave it a five. Um, I think if it had a little bit more you know, what I keep talking about a little bit more, just connection to everything uh, as far as continuity goes. I probably, it probably would have even been up higher than that. Uh, it was enjoyable for the parody slash uh, satire aspect of it, but it just never felt real to me. Uh, I'm going to give it uh, five voting buttons out of six because it, like Andy said, it does get a little long in the tooth and not as smooth as some of the other ones that we've seen so far. So, uh, yeah, five, five, five voting, but I'm going to go five as well. Uh, I, I like the first 30 minutes or so a lot more than I like the conclusion only because I think it does feel like there's a little bit of padding in it as much as the boat action sequence is well done and well directed and all that shit. It's, it kind doesn't need to be there. And then I think it does go off the rails a little bit with some of the surrealism, which I know I'm going to contradict myself later on when we get further down the line. Uh, in this one, I was kind of hoping for a bit more focus. But that being said, I still think it looks good. I still think it evokes the pop art sensibilities of like 1960s, probably better than a lot of other shows that were on the air at the time. And I think it's very well shot by Magoo. And even if the trade off for that is his performance isn't perhaps as good as it normally is. All right, so we all gave it fives, but what did Blaine think? Hi, guys. This is one that would have worked much better for me had it been an earlier episode. We've seen too many people in the number two role by now. If they were elected, number six would have seen the elections. Had this been the first episode to show a new number two, then I'd believe he'd give it a shot. Here, I doubted he'd given it a chance, suspecting there was a plan afoot, as there was. I admit the execution of that plan, right down to the brainwashing, was almost enough to turn me around. Sadly, I just can't believe that number six would have so readily put himself in this position after the experiences he's already had. It just doesn't work for me. Next up, Many Happy Returns, which is episode seven on the iTunes order. Thanks, Blaine, for your thoughts on that. We always appreciate it. And uh, do we have anything else before we just figure out what we're going to do next time? No, only Supervisor Watch. The Supervisor's in it again. Butler Watch. The Butler's in it again. 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, number six is in it. Those are three recurring characters. None of the guest stars were really known to me for anything else. Right. Did I, don't know I, think, whether, I, I think we got an orange alert, right? Orange yeah. alert. We got an orange alert. We got the stock footage of Rover crushing that same Ew. guy's face. Ew. They had corny wear. <laughs> so there's like, I did a deep dive on that that whole music that happens when Rover comes out. Yeah. It's it's like, you know what? I'll do a deep dive again because there's like a lot of layers of stuff in there. There's Gregorian chant that's being played. Like I I can't remember if it's backwards or there's just like all kinds of stuff in in that that audio effect stuff is for cool. for Rover. Stuff. You got stuff. All right, so that's so, it for this one, and then the question becomes, what are we doing next time? Next time on an all-new episode, number six gets a cake in many happy returns. Yay. The bell rings out over the village, an ominously silent, utterly deserted village. This is the time the prisoner must make his bid for freedom. Back to his homeland and his friends to many happy returns. What's the number of that car? Do tell me. I know every nut and bolt and cog. I built it with my own hands. Then you're just the man I want to see. I've been having a good deal of overheating in traffic. But now, no one will believe in his world of fantasy. Tell him our problem, Paul. You resign, you disappear, you return. You spin a yarn that Hans Christian Andersen would reject. I also have a problem. I'm not sure which side runs this village. The past is unreal, the future uncertain, unless he can find his prison, the place they called The Village. Don't miss this next suspense-filled episode of The Prisoner. There it is. I did an entire episode about this one on Palace Collection Delights. Go and listen to it. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> I can edit that out if I want. <laughs> nah, nah. No, of course I'm going to leave it. But I want I want I want to leave you the comment that I can though. edit it out. <laughs> you can double your money though. You get a complete deep dive into the show shot by shot and then you get us talking about it more general. Sounds good to me. All right. Bye-bye everybody. Goodbye. Oh no. Vote early and you. often. <laughs> That's the current uh, theory. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. Who are you? The village people. Who are the supervisor, Paul Spataro. The chess master, Dave Pascarella. Rover, Dr. Bill Robinson. And Andrew Leyland as the butler. The village people. Investigating the prisoner. I, I I don't know what we're doing. She we take, are you taking her the keys yet, by any chance? <laughs> no. Are you kidding? You want to you take her the keys? We want to make sure you have a good time. <laughs> enemies become friends, friends become enemies. <laughs> wink, wink, does not say the wrong thing. You're turning into one of the uh, mutants from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> you you Bill's going to stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> like Pat, like Patrick. Are you sure you have a good time for our anniversary? They got to email her privately and say that you should take her away. Give her what she needs, Bill. <laughs> <laughs>
feel like I just went into a time machine. How many years is it? Uh, fuck. I fuck. I don't know. I twenty eight. <laughs> you know what, Bill? Wow. Bill, this is this is like your, this is like your dude. kids' birthdays. I know them better than you. It's twenty eight. Shut up. Because you got married in nineteen ninety four, did you not? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's ninety. <laughs> so yeah, so it's two two more years, and it's three decades. Jesus Christ. And and, and the response uh, to that is always, if I had killed her on the honeymoon, I'd be out by now. That's what I say. I'm like, you know, I would have been out of prison by now. Hey, with the new laws, you'd be out even sooner. I would have never went in. You never would have went in. I'd have been out of jail. You would have walked properly, though. 